Voyage. In 1976, a man in Florida tells a cop he has a confession to make. Arriving in Miami, I proceeded to do certain things that I considered to be necessary in the crime that I planned to commit. I had nearly been one of his victims myself. My connection to him would totally change my life. From Orbit Media and Sony Music Entertainment, my friend, the serial killer, is coming June 1st. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. I was only 19 years old. You know how it is when you're young. You make mistakes without thinking about the consequences. And sometimes one mistake can change your whole life. It could have been anybody, but it was me. In the next 365 days in Vietnam, I would see things and do things that went against all my beliefs, including my belief in God. Before I was drafted, I spent my summers enjoying what the beach had to offer. I especially remember the sunburns, the surfing, and the hanging around the surf shops located at Pacific Beach. I was living with my dad at the time, and he insisted that I further my education. So I enrolled at the local community college. But I also wanted to make money, and that meant joining the stocking crew at a local grocery store in Solana Beach. I worked nights and went to school during the day. After one semester of college, I quit school without saying anything to my dad. One day, dad brought me an envelope from the mail. He had a funny look on his face. He handed me the letter and we both read it. That was the letter that changed my life for the worse. Because it said I was to report to the selective service office in two weeks. Dad was in a panic, wondering why I was getting drafted, considering I was still in school. Well, that's when I had to come clean and tell him I'd dropped out of school. It's also when I realized how foolish I'd been, because at the time, every college in America was duty-bound to report to the government when a male student dropped out of college so they could fight for their country. Some people fled to Canada to avoid the draft, but I didn't. I didn't want to do that. I told my dad I was going to do my patriotic duty, but that's only because I had no idea what the reality of war was. And for the next year, my life would no longer be my own. I spent a brutal eight weeks of infantry training in Northern California. One night, halfway through advanced infantry training, our drill instructor, Sergeant Melvin, sat us trainees down and told us the facts. He was a strong man who had lost his leg in Nam, but that night he'd been drinking and he was crying. He said his biggest fear was that we were gonna go to Vietnam and experience the horror that he went through. You gotta pay attention here and prepare for what's out there even though there really ain't no way to prepare, he said. When you see a grown man cry, it does something to you. 
Outside the training walls, the free love movement was in full bloom. So when we got short breaks from training, we'd go to the local amusement park to pick up girls. I met a girl on one such park trip. I told her I was about to take off for Vietnam. She said she'd write to me. Though we'd just met, I knew she'd wait for me. She was someone I could spend a life with. That is, if I survived. I landed in Vietnam in August 1968. The first thing that hit me was the smell. I found out later that the smell was the burning of human feces. I knew quickly that Sergeant Melvin was right. This was not going to be a good experience. I didn't have to wait long for my first taste of war. That night, all hell broke loose. Incoming rockets hit in front of the runway I had just landed on, and small arms fire was heard around the perimeter. It was the first time I had ever heard an AK-47. I remember looking out of the bunker praying I'd make it. I had no way to defend myself. In time, we would eventually learn how to sleep through the noise of bombs being dropped. The next morning, I got my assignment to the 25th Wolfhounds, and as I approached the NCO to get my orders, he said to me, Wolfhounds? I feel sorry for you, man. What did he mean by that? That was a foreboding welcome. Next thing I know, I'm boarding a truck that would take me to the 25th Infantry. A few of the other guys had been assigned to the Wolfhounds with me. We had no weapons. The driver had someone next to him with an M16, and there was an M60 machine gun mounted on the roof of the truck for us to use if we got ambushed. But we felt vulnerable and exposed as we drove through the jungle and the villages for hours. We asked the driver when we would be issued weapons. He laughed at us. The other guys and I tried to get to know each other as much as we could during that long drive. Two of those men, though I didn't know at the time, would become my best friends for life. The name's Rich Johnson. I've heard of you. You got a good rep with the sergeants. Rumor has it you aced advanced training at Fort Glade. They said you're like nothing they've ever seen before. Eh, suppose so, but I don't know if that's good. Because the better you do in training, the more you're punished, isn't it? Because now I'm in the toughest squadron in Nam. Trust me, I've heard some bleak things about wolfhounds. Things that'll keep you up at night. Even if we survive, it's going to be a slow walk through hell. We'd all thought about how the next year was going to be hell. But Rich was the only one brave enough to say it out loud so far. So how'd they get you guys? I was working at a jewelry store going to college. The next thing I know, I'm on a plane to basic training in Washington. And there it was. The same thing that had happened to me happened to Rich. I told him I'd dropped out from school, and that's how the draft got me. Yep. Same. They said college boys were the smart ones in training. But we were not so smart, huh? Should have stuck in school. Not so smart. Well, one of you two will be made squad leader, I can tell you that. Why'd you say that? Because the government wants to draft people with critical thinking skills. They reckon anyone who can get into college has at least half a brain, and people like you have a greater chance out there. I reckon it'll be John. He would turn out to be right. 
After what seemed like an eternity, we arrived at base camp. We stood in the hot sun and humidity for about 15 minutes until we saw a guy holding a clipboard come out and walk directly towards us. Rich seemed to recognize him. Oh, I've heard about this guy. <laughs> they call him Teach. Why? He used to be a teacher, but forget that. He's a legend. He was serving in the 2nd platoon guarding the Hawkmon Bridge, and he got into it with a 2,000-pound water buffalo. What? You heard me right. Apparently, the damn animal took a hating to him and gored him. But then this other guy, Sergeant Garner, acted quickly, got him to the field hospital. Teach got a hole in his stomach and broken ribs on both sides, and the round shot to kill the beast got lodged in his knee, but he survived. That's what it's gonna take to be in this squad, I guess. Well, as you can imagine, we were mesmerized by Teach after hearing what he'd been through. It was equal parts inspiring and terrifying. And Ryan was right. If this was what it took to be in the Wolfhounds, I didn't have what it took. War hadn't even really begun for me, and I already wanted to go home. After a few more days of jungle training, this time learning about specific booby traps we might encounter here on the ground, Teach told us that we would be joining the 2nd Platoon, located at Crockett Fire Support Base. It was here we would meet Sergeant Garner. Look at here. You the new replacements? Names? Yes, Sergeant. Rich Johnson, John Quintrell, and Ryan Hammer. All right. Hammer, Quintrell. You two go over to the perimeter by the graveyard and set up that half-round culvert and fill sandbags to cover it. Johnson, go to the bunker next to the culvert and ask for Big Joe. Get your asses in gear, boys. That half-round culvert would turn out to be Ryan's and my home as long as we were at Crockett. Garner told us that in the next week we would be receiving several more replacements. Until those replacements arrive, you're gonna be a sound perimeter security. And you're gonna build bunkers and fighting positions. Sounds simple, right? Well, it ain't. Get to work. Oh, and once those replacements get in, well, that's when the real shit'll hit the fan. The next day, Garner informed us what the shit he'd referred to meant. Frequent ambush patrols. The job of the platoon was to go out on ambush patrols at night. The hope was that the enemy would walk into our ambush and we'd take out as many of them as possible. We got to the ambush site and waited there for what seemed like an eternity until it got dark. The longer we were there, the more nervous we got. Being close to the village meant we had a hundred eyes on us at all times. Garner had given us the rundown beforehand. You gotta march in two files, keeping the distance behind the guy in front of you. Remember, ladies, one round could get y'all. After walking for about 10 more minutes, we turned right and walked parallel to a long hedgerow. The two columns came to a halt and everyone knelt down, waiting to see what we were going to do next. I was lying next to Rich and another soldier, fighting off the mosquitoes that had just started eating us for their evening meal. Rich was playing with an old coin with a bullet hole through it. This was a treasured possession he carried around with him everywhere since training. Hansen was down away to our right, he was quiet until about 
0100 hours, and then... There's six VCs walking directly towards our location. You think they know we're here? Not likely. But remember, no one opens up till Henson starts. And it's all hands-on. Rock and roll. It's too dark. Where did they go? Don't know. Hold on. Rich had burned his hand trying to replace the burned-out barrel on his M60, but the rest of us kept shooting. I saw one of the VCs go down. I'd shot him in the head. Henson shouted, cease fire, and the shooting stopped. Rich, John, you guys good? My hand's burned, you dirty bastard. Oh. <laughs> but I'm gonna be right as rain. How many did we get? Five, I think. Yes. Five NVA soldiers were killed that night. One of them killed by me. I felt numb. It was only a few weeks since I'd landed in Vietnam. A young boy from San Diego who had been surfing a few months prior, and now I'd kill someone. That feeling of loss and dread over what you've done, it never goes away. I guess our work's done here. Bet you there's gonna be another ambush patrol tomorrow. <laughs> Every night a new ambush. Don't know how much I can take of this. Tell me about it. And did you hear? Sergeant Henson's leading us into one today, around the same spot as last time. But that don't make a lick of sense. VC's gonna be looking for us. Why lead us into the same area? It was a good question. Treading the same ground seemed like a good way to get killed. But we were new. We didn't understand the strategy yet. We were still scared, wondering what we would be doing at home if we hadn't been hiding in the bushes shooting at people. The next night, we met at Henson's bunker and got ready to head out. As we headed out through the wire and walked towards the trucks, I noticed my hands were shaking. All right, man. You're going to do two files just like last night. Everybody, keep your distance from the guy in front of you, and keep your eyes and ears open. Told you. Another night cheating death. Yeah, that's if we manage to cheat it. The fact that any night could be our last always weighed on us. But what choice did we have? We had to follow orders. So we did. That night, Henson decided to walk towards the rear of the column in front of me with Rich walking directly behind me. We had only been walking for about five minutes when suddenly, one of the first RPG rounds looked like a Roman candle coming straight towards us. There was no time to react. The round landed 10 feet in front of Henson and exploded. I saw Henson fall face down on the ground. Within seconds, the guys towards the front opened up and began firing into the hedgerows where the RPGs had been launched from. I heard Ryan's recoilless fire with a huge bang. The round exploded in the center of the hedgerow, causing a huge explosion and starting the bamboo on fire. I was laying there waiting for Henson to tell us what to do. My heart was pounding out of my chest and my hands were sweating and shaking. But Henson wasn't moving. I'm hit! Oh, I'm hit! Oh. Medic! We need a medic! We got multiple injuries here. Rich, where are you hit? Never mind me. John, check the damage on Henson. 
I crawled up to Henson and tapped him on the shoulder. He was unresponsive. I grabbed him by the shoulder and turned him over and immediately I heard a whistling sound coming from his chest. Damn! It's a sucking chest wound! We gotta stop the bleeding. Almost by instinct, I took the bandage off my web gear, tore open the plastic wrapping, and removed the bandage. I opened Henson's fatigue jacket and I could see blood bubbling from a small hole in his chest. His eyes were wide open, looking at me and softly moaning. Don't worry, Sarge. Doc's on the way. I placed the plastic wrapper over the hole and held the compressed bandage over the plastic and the whistling and bleeding stopped. Henson was turning his head from side to side and all I could think of was, how is this happening? I'm too young to deal with this. Where's that damn medevac? How bad were you hit, man? I don't know. I think I was hit by shrapnel off the RPG. Can't see if I'm bleeding. <laughs> Too damn dark. I knew I had to stay with Henson until the medic arrived, but we were still under attack. After what seemed like forever, I saw Doc running across the field through a barrage of tracers directly towards our location. Doc, Henson has a chest wound. Doc took his scissors and cut the back of Henson's fatigue jacket up the center, and when he opened up the two halves, there was a large, jagged hole in the center of Henson's back. Doc looked at me with tears in his eyes. His expression said it all. Christ, he isn't going to make it. What can we do? Doc said to hold him and tell him everything is going to be okay. I did as Doc said. Rich crawled over to me to help. It's okay, Sarge. It's all gonna be okay. The medevac's gonna be here in a second, and then we're gonna get you patched up. Hold on, Sarge. Hold on. But as the medevac helicopter landed, Henson rattled out his last breath. I couldn't believe he had just died in my arms. Ryan and I picked up Henson and carried him to the waiting chopper. We slid his lifeless body onto the floor of the helicopter. Then we turned to Rich. You good, Rich? You were hit. Legs were hit, but looks like it was just rocks from the blast, not, not the actual RPG. I can walk. Good. Glad the three of us are okay. At least there's that. As the chopper lifted off, Rich, Ryan, and I looked at each other, and tears ran down our faces. I remember asking God why he would allow somebody as good as Henson to be killed. He was almost at the end of his tour merely weeks away from going home. I remember thinking, if experienced soldiers like Henson could get killed, what chances would I have of making it the entire 12 months? I think this was the first time I faced the reality that I probably would not make it home alive. Besides being exhausted and in shock and almost being blown away, most of us were starting to become really pissed off. We're losing so many good men. They got Henson. Last week they got Fred Robinson. Week before that, Billy, Teddy, Joe Rogers, Peter Sink. Makes my blood boil. I hear you, man. I was told we were fighting commies down here so that communism doesn't spread to America, you know? Now that I'm down here... Sure seems like a different fight, doesn't it? And sending us back out to the same damn location so we're easy targets for VCs? Nah, it ain't right. 
You see Tiger over there? His wife just gave birth to twin boys and he can't even be happy. It's in the back of his mind he knows it's a real possibility he may never get back home to see those kids of his. Like Tiger, we all feared that we would never make it home. I was beginning to hide the horrible events we'd faced in a dark room in my mind, hoping to slam the door on them forever. That evening, I wrote a letter home. It was always in the back of my mind that this might be my last letter home. I told my mom not to worry about me and asked her if she could send me some more homemade chocolate chip cookies. One night in late January, we went to a place called Jackson Fire Support Base, and there was a new replacement there waiting to join our platoon. His name was Jim Brown. Brown and I had a lot in common. We lived with our dads when we both got drafted, and we both dropped out of college, resulting in our landing in Vietnam. We both played in high school sports, and we both liked to hunt. He was a bright young kid that wanted to learn as much as he could as fast as he could. I decided to take him under my wing. We spent a lot of time together. He caught on fast and realized he had joined a unit that had experienced a lot of combat. This was a kid I would grow fond of. One night, we walked about a half of a click to the west of the base and found a hedgerow where we could hide until dark. By this time in my tour, I couldn't really sleep on ambushes. No one could really. I turned to Brown and said, if we pop this ambush, get up and get your duper going as fast as you can. He was eager to comply. I was chasing little stickmen around in my mind because I couldn't sleep when the ambush got dangerous. Oh, oh, I think I see something. John, check it out. I put the starlight up to my eye and looked in the direction of the village. My whole body stiffened. There was a large group of VC soldiers standing at the end of the berm that led to our position. As I swung the scope to the left, I saw three VC point men walking down about 100 foot from our claymores. I told Brown, get ready to shoot. I saw three bodies flying in the air as if they were in slow motion. A burst from one of the men's AKs hit the top of the berm in front of me. The dirt hit me directly in the eyes, making it impossible to see. Rich's squad was shooting with everything they had. I wiped the dirt from my eyes and immediately grabbed a parachute flare and popped it out in front of our position. When the flare lit up, I could not see any of the VC we'd seen before. I vaguely saw a lot of movement by the village but could not tell what they were doing. And then I noticed Brown was slumped behind the berm next to me. I assumed he was scared to death in his first firefight. I reached over and grabbed his shoulder and shook him and I heard the distinct sound of a death rattle escaping his lungs. Rob, no! What happened? What happened? He's hit in the head. We're losing him. As we pulled him away, I saw the bullet hole in his forehead. But before I could even process what was happening, we saw in the shadows of the illumination flare that a large group of VC were running towards us. I grabbed a Laws rocket, took it off safety, and took the best aim I could. Then I fired it towards them. I suddenly realized Ryan was directly behind me in the back blast area when the Laws rocket went off. My legs had been stretched out behind me 
so I could get a three-point stance to shoot the laws, and my legs were caught in the backblast area as well. Neither one of us could make it to our feet. After the rocket exploded near the VC infantrymen, they disappeared into the village. I suspect they were deciding on whether to overrun our position or not. I hope the Laws rocket helped them make up their minds. Ryan! John! Hold on! There's a medevac on its way! When the medevac sat down, Rich came and got me and Ryan and lifted us onto the floor of the chopper. Luckily, Ryan was going to be okay, and so was I. But I remember the feeling of the chopper lifting off, and I wished I was still on the ground with the rest of the guys. Then I turned my head to the side and found myself looking directly into the lifeless eyes of Jim Brown. I started crying and realized the last thing I told him was to get up and start shooting when I popped the claymores. There's nothing you could have done, man. It's not your fault he's gone. You were a good soldier, you did your duty, and so did he. In the pit of my stomach, I felt a horrible guilt. I would never get the look in his eyes out of my head as long as I live. He had followed my orders exactly, and now he was dead. I'm sorry, Jim. I'm so sorry. One night after an ambush, we got back to the base to rest only to be told we were to report to the Navy advance base on the Vamkodong River. The Navy boats there carried small groups of GIs up and down the river looking for enemy forces. The idea was to run slowly up the river and wait for the VC to open up on you and then turn the boat towards the shore, jump off the boat, and assault whoever was firing at the boat. Sounds simple, right? Well, not really. Got it right here. Ryan had a grappling hook round for his M79. It was designed to shoot a grappling hook attached to a thin cord. He shot the hook 50 feet across the river into a stand of bamboo, and it hung up, allowing Rich to pull himself across the river with a rope tied around his waist. When he reached the other side, he climbed out of the water and pulled himself up onto the steep bank. He tied the rope to the bamboo stand, and Tiger pulled the rope taunt and secured it to a post that Ryan had driven into the ground. You think anyone else has tried this ship before? We were the first to enter the water and cross the river. Just as we began crossing, a helicopter hovered over the riverbank and dropped an inflatable raft onto the ground. Brad Newman, one of our RTOs, unfolded the raft. The plan was is to put Brad in the raft with the radio and have him pull himself and the raft across to the other side. But best laid plans can always go awry. As soon as the raft reached the center of the river, all hell broke loose. There were NVA soldiers inside the hedgerow and they opened up on us. Bullets were going everywhere, including between our legs. There was no time to react, so I jumped backwards into the river with my M16 blasting on full auto. The last three shells in my magazine were shot underwater. It was a miracle no one was killed in the first 30 seconds. My guys clung to the bank and held their rifles above the bank's edge and opened up on the hedgerow. I was changing clips out when I saw a strafe of AK bullets skip across the river and hit the rubber raft. 
Within an instant, I saw Brad roll out of the sinking raft and go straight down. I had no idea if he was hit or not. I did know with the weight of the radio on his back, he would sink to the bottom and drown. The rest of the squad were hastily retreating back to the other side of the river. I didn't hesitate. I pulled myself up on the bank and ran down in front of the hedgerow. I suddenly realized I was running across the NVA kill zone. When I reached the others, I dove off the bank and swam down to where I thought Brad had went down. The water was murky and the visibility was next to nothing. As I swam along the bottom, I kept reaching out in front of me, hoping I would run into my beleaguered comrade. I knew he'd been down at least three minutes, and if I didn't find him, he would be screwed. I was just about to go up for air when my hand ran into the rucksack attached to Brad's back, and he was still in it. He was sitting on the bottom of the river, trying to hold his breath. I planted my feet on the river bottom, jerked him up, and pushed him towards the surface. I surfaced right next to him and pushed him to the shore. Up on the surface, my squad was shooting the hell out of the hedgerow. We were too close to the NVA to call in any kind of support. The NVA had us dead to rights, and there wasn't anything we could do about it. When I got back to my gear lying on the bank, I thought our gooses were completely cooked. I saw one of our squad, a tough guy named Lombard, stand up and drape several rounds of M60 ammo over his shoulder and pick up his M60 machine gun and walk down the riverbank to our left. The NVA were trying to hit him and their rounds were landing around his feet. There was a small mound of dirt about three feet high that he laid his gun on. He clipped together a couple of the belts of the M60 ammo and loaded up his smoke wagon and prepared to go to work. Oh, he's got you now. Just you wait, you bastards. You don't mess with Lombard. And there's another surprise coming. I called in air support. Lombard started shooting across the river to the left of our position. He had them caught in a crossfire, and suddenly, the shooting to our front stopped. I will never forget seeing him kneeling behind his 60, with a cigarette in his mouth, shooting control bursts of four rounds, bringing hell down on the enemy. The AK rounds hitting in front of his position did not baze him a bit. Was Lombard gutsy or crazy? Hero or lunatic? Whatever he was, Lombard's actions gave us a chance to pull ourselves across the river, back to our platoon. We got back to safety across the river, and that's when we saw the overwhelming power of the Air Force, F-4 Phantom jets carrying 500 pounds of bunker-busting bombs. They were so low to the ground, we could wave at them and see them give us the thumbs up. The planes made one dry run just across the river, then banked sharply and returned and dropped their ordnance behind the hedgerow. The explosions were deafening. The ground shook like an earthquake. Huge clods of earth were being hurled into the sky. The air assault lasted for about 30 minutes. The next morning, we would cross the river again and see what was on the other side of the blown-up hedgerow. During the night, I dreaded the thought of crossing that river again. I knew we were pressing our luck. I thought about all the good men we'd lost. What if I was next? This was the kind of paranoia we dealt with every day. But we kept going. We crossed the river 
and went through the hedgerow. But when we broke through to the other side, it was like walking into a place hit by a tornado. There were bunkers that had the tops blown off of them and blood evidence that told the story of the crushing blow they had taken by the 500-pounders. Whoa. Look at this place. Wait. Is that an arm? It was. The Air Force had done a number on these guys, and I'm assuming the ones that weren't blown up got the hell out of there, even though it meant leaving guns and ammo behind. There were also several cooking pots and cooking utensils scattered around as well as bags of rice. The NVA had been here for a while and hadn't planned on moving on anytime soon. I picked up an NVA flag and put it in my pack. I would send that home as a souvenir along with the NVA officer's belt I removed from its dead owner. We spent the better part of the day picking up weapons, ammo, grenades, RPG launchers and rounds and pile them up for the engineers to blow in place. At the end of the day, the company was credited with 36 confirmed kill and an estimated 25 casualties. As for me, I received a bronze star for valor for risking my life through the kill zone to save our RTO, Brad Newman. It was the first time I thought to myself, hey, maybe I will make it. But then again, one can never be so sure of that. Six months into my tour, I got to go to Hong Kong for a seven-day R&R. Now, for a guy who had been dealing with the realities of war without the touch of a woman for half a year, you can guess the first place I headed as soon as I touched down in Hong Kong. But I was naive and inexperienced and didn't know what I was doing. My sexual exploits in Hong Kong consisted of a prostitute taking advantage of me. After that, I enjoyed what the city had to offer outside of the brothels. But as I did so, I thought about the fact that the highest number of AWOLs occurred during R&R. There was a medic who'd worked with us for a few months prior who had gone on R&R and never returned. I seriously considered doing what he had done but I had no money, and I only had a return ticket to Vietnam. I had to go back. I wanted nothing more than to run back to the life I could have had, had I not been drafted. But in February 1969, I found myself on a plane from Hong Kong, not going back home, but back to Saigon. When I landed, I saw a supply chopper getting ready to go to the base. I hated having to go back there. I had a gut feeling something bad was going to happen. Something worse than the things that had already happened. One night, Sergeant Garner came by with a warning. Hey, don't jack around, guys. I got a feeling it's going to be a busy night. On this particular night, our guys inside the wire had no starlight scope to help detect movement outside the wire. The sounds of muffled voices rose out of the bunkers as Rich sewed his treasured bullet hole coin to a few newbies. Tiger passed around new photos of his kids and some guys jazzed each other over card games. Then, at 0115 hours, the distinct sound of mortars and rockets being launched could be heard in the distance. There is no scarier thing on earth than the whistling sound of a rocket 
as it makes its way coming down in your direction. When the bunker guards heard the mortars, they immediately jumped down and dove into the bunkers. After the first volley hit, more 122 rockets and 81mm mortars kept raining down inside the base. There was a huge explosion in front of 2nd Platoon's bunkers. Diamond was being assaulted by the NVA's elite sapper squads. They were just simply the best at what they did. Garner and I, along with others from our platoon, including Rich, headed into battle trying to stop as many NVAs as we could. God, I hope the guys in those bunkers got out in time. They did, they had to. Hope you're right, but I have a gut wrench and feeling we're wrong. Garner was taking heavy fire and a couple of AK-47 rounds grazed the radio pack he was carrying. Two Cobra helicopters had just arrived on station and Garner thought he could get them on the radio and have them concentrate fire outside the wire where the NBA were pouring in. Cobra, this is Charlie 2. Need some ordnance near the southeast corner. Diamond hit 36. Diamond hit 36. And hell, please don't drop it on me. The men of the 2nd platoon that fought so gallantly that night on the ambush patrol walked in a staggered formation as we approached the destroyed fire support base. We were beleaguered and disoriented. The looks on the faces of my fellow men was a mixture of shock and weariness. We called that look the thousand yard stare. Then we saw what had happened to Diamond One. Where are our bunkers? I think those holes, see those holes? I think those were the bunkers. No. What about the bunker guards? Did they get out in time? Another sergeant came running up to us, a somber look on his face. It was then that we noticed several lumpy ponchos on the ground near the bunkers. Sergeant, where are our men? The sergeant pointed to the ponchos, and that's when we realized our bunker guards were all dead. I looked at Garner in disbelief. How could those be our guys? I walked straight towards the ponchos and knelt down next to the first one on the left. I reached down and lifted the upper part of the poncho. I almost threw up. Oh, is that... It's him. It's Tiger. Tiger's skin was a pale gray, and he had a blank expression on his face. In an instant, I flashed back to him showing us pictures of his twin baby boys. I was sick to my stomach. I stood up and walked over to the rest of the platoon and I started to cry. We all broke down and wept. Air blown up. Didn't stand a chance. He had a family. What are they going to do without him? We all have families. Years later, I read a congressional record that said that Diamond One was considered an acceptable loss ratio. One of ours to ten of theirs. Because the U.S. government thought it was a good ratio, Diamond Two and Diamond Three happened. More acceptable losses happen, and every day, men in the trenches feared it would be their last day. Rich had a girlfriend. I had someone I'd met while in training in Northern California who was waiting for me back home. We were leaving people behind, but all we could do was wait and fight. Wait till our tour was over. Wait till we were replaced. Wait till we could finally go home. The day before the official end of my tour of duty, I showed up at Garner's office to pick up my paperwork. 
Glad to see you made it, Big John. He handed me my orders and stood up and stuck out his hand. I grabbed it, and he shook my hand vigorously. Good luck, Wolfhound. Keep your nose clean. I left his office and went to look for Rich. It was his last day, too. Ryan had been sent home a few months earlier, injured. But he made it, too. John, can you believe we're finally going to get home? Hasn't quite hit me yet. I thought we were all goners for sure. Rich reached into his pocket and held out his treasured old bullet hole coin. Here, I want you to have this, John. He slipped the coin into my palm. I knew how much the coin meant to him. I was touched. You know, when we're all on that truck together a year ago, I remember thinking, what if I don't make it? What if these new friends I'm making here are gone in a few days? <laughs> but we survived. And I know, we're gonna be friends for life. Rich gave me a bear hug. I teared up. And that's when it hit me. We really had survived. We were really going home. That night, the guys in the supply room gave us a going away party. Not many guys made it the whole 365 days. Rich and I were looked upon as some kind of heroes. It was nice, but I kept thinking about the 45 men that got killed in my platoon. I started to imagine what it would be like to step foot on the good old USA again. I thought about what was waiting for me at home. The woman I'd met in the amusement park had indeed waited for me. She wanted to get married and had even moved in with my sister. I liked her, but didn't have much time to think about her during the war. When I came home, however, someone waiting for me and wanting to get married felt comforting. I married her, even though she was basically a stranger. We ended up having three children together, but of course, it didn't last. I had a lot of PTSD from the war, and I drowned my trauma in alcohol. I had flashbacks and nightmares, and my marriage suffered. But don't worry, the story has a happy ending. I eventually moved to Billings, Montana, where I earned a bachelor's degree in education and began a teaching career. In 1992, I married the true love of my life, my third marriage. I have 12 grandchildren and three great-grandchildren. I have had several careers and finally settled down as an Allstate insurance agent in Great Falls, Montana. I retired from that position after 25 years of service. Rich and Ryan are still my best friends. In June 2004, 20 wolfhounds and their wives met in Washington, D.C. for our first reunion. It was truly an event to remember. The guys that were quiet in Nam were still quiet, and the smartasses in Nam were still smartasses. Conversations picked up right where they ended in Nam. We pledged to meet every two years at a different venue. Over the next 16 years, I found over 100 men, and our reunions grew bigger every year. In 2019, I decided to get live interviews from all the guys. This would be a historic record of our service and our lives. Generations to come would be able to hear the stories firsthand. 
My son Tim and I headed out on a cross-country excursion and taped interviews. Today, our Wolfhounds website has over a million hits. We have survived hell together, and now the world knows our story. True War Stories Mission Report is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mandel, Robert Midas, and Dan Benamore. This episode, 365 Days with the Wolfhounds, was written and directed by Minoti Vashnav. Based on the novel, My 365 Days with the Wolfhounds in Vietnam, 1968-1969, A Combat Veteran's Journey, by John Quintrell. The novel is available in Kindle, audiobook, and paperback form from Amazon. A link is in the show notes. You can also see what happened to members of the Wolfhounds by going to www.wolfhoundssecond27th.org, and that link is also in the show notes. Starring Adam Baldwin as Rich, John Cahill as Ryan, and Jerome St. Jerome as Garner. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by Andres Coca. Original music by Dreyless Gonzalez. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening. And subscribe now for future episodes.